My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again, with your, Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? hour you're barely awake hanging on by a thread seeking searching for the next piece of the puzzle deep in the guts of a dark mysterious enigma puzzling to most but to the initiated few the research rabbit hole becomes a familiar place a path well tread today's guest is a fellow researcher it's put in the time underground digging where most dare not esoteric eddie author documentarian and researcher joins me for a conversation about his dive into his family roots finding some connections to mexico and spain we discuss the occult atmosphere that hangs thick over the streets of mexico coloring their macabre culture and stupefying those who haven't faced their own mortality yet. Eddie invites us to join him as he takes us through a brief history of Mesoamerica and a dark figure who may have cursed all of Mexico to this day. All that and so much more with me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode featuring Esoteric Eddie. question here is the Toltec. So the Toltec going, so Frank Diaz's story starts with this guy by the name of Human the Elder. And, and again, these are all, what I'm telling you are, you know, real stories being told to us from Mayan and Toltec people. So these are actual legendary tales. It'd be like opening up the Bible. In this story, it starts with Human the Elder saying a prophecy. And Human the Elder is giving this prophecy right around 33 BC. And Human says that he has been alive for about 300 years. And he has seen his Toltec people from inception to that point in time. And Human the Elder says that there will come a a day where this king will rise and he will be a great king and he will he will face trouble and strife and he will lose the kingdom and he will find defeat and the kingdom will fall to that enemy but that king will carry on as a spiritual leader forever to be remembered as that spiritual leader who helped revive a spirit in mexico as this new age was dawning before he left mysteriously Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Today on the show, 
We have someone who is a returning guest, although it was on a different format. I last spoke to him here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy RSS feed, and he's returning to discuss not only his great authorship, publishing a book about the Lucifer mystery, but we're also going to get into some of the really compelling documentaries that he has on his YouTube channel. So without further ado, Eddie, can you please introduce yourself for our audience and, and tell us a little bit about yourself? What up, what up? Thank you for having me here. Namaste. Uh, I'm Esoteric Eddie. I've been researching the esoteric, occult, conspiratorial for well over 10 years now. Um, got into it at an early age, mostly because it's just all these random re uh, revelations that I had throughout my life. You know, my whole life is kind of revolved around the esoteric, had certain instances or, or came across certain pieces of information and knowledge all throughout my childhood, early teen years that kind of led me on this path. And uh, more recently, within the past uh, couple years, almost a few years now, I've been taking this really serious now, launching my uh, documentary channel and also um, getting back into my writings, publishing a book last year and uh, getting ready to publish uh, another one this year as well. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Are you willing to disclose what it's about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've mentioned it before in other podcasts. Uh, it's actually my first book getting, um, re you know, re-edited. So it's technically my second book, but it's actually my first book. I, I released my first book back in 2018 when I was like 23 years old. And um, it was just horrible, to be honest. It was I just I, it was, I was too eager it wasn't professionally written um, and never, it was not professionally edited either. Uh, but I'm going through a, a painstaking, you know, uh, revisions right now, but it's, it's awesome. I'm actually having a good time, like diving into the research and just adding so much more dense information. And I'm going to also uh, get it professionally edited just like I did my last one, but uh, it's titled the Anunnaki theorem. It started off as kind of like a, a brief rundown of what the Anunnaki theory is kind of just like a pickup reader for somebody who's never heard of it before, you know, to kind of as an introductory uh, type of piece. But, but my views have changed on the Anunnaki and Sitchin's work and stuff like that since I dropped that book. So I'm like finding myself revising like the whole premise of the book now. And it's, it's still going to be titled the Anunnaki theorem and center around that, but it's more or less a comparative theology piece now. Right on, man. And kudos to you for recognizing that, Hey, this needs some work. I better go and take a whack at it. That's awesome, man. I appreciate that. And I think that subject deserves more uh, of a spotlight on it. I recently had a conversation with Freddie Silva, and he pieces the Anunnaki story in with the history of Armenia, which I'm sure you might be familiar with that, given you're researching it as well. But I found that fascinating that there's this whole political reasons why you don't generally get this information. You know, people don't consider that often that. You know, the places that we are finding these amazing megalithic structures or places that have such potent history, you know, unfortunately are sometimes in places that aren't accessible by typical researchers just because of the political whatever that's going on. I mean, there's a lot of wars that go on in that area. It makes it difficult 
to know uh, whether or not you're going to be safe going over there to, to discover this kind of stuff. But wow, man, this is fascinating. You mentioned having a couple of sort of symbolic occurrences when you're a kid, certain information as you were growing up that popped out at you. We're the same age. I think you're born in 94 as well, right? Right on. So I I think there's some kind of indigo child energy going on with us right now. So I'm really excited to, to dive into that a little bit. But what were some of those childhood experiences? Do you remember any that were significant to, to retell? Yeah, man, there's, yeah, there's a bunch. Um, and one of them that I kind of mentioned a lot because it is was impactful to me was I remember being in first grade and going to the library as we would like every week or so to pick out a new book. And I, I've always loved history, which is like a, uh, you know, which shows me that this was kind of my path. I've always loved history of, among other things, but I remember picking out this one book that spoke about knights and dragons and dinosaurs and stuff like that. It was a weird mix, but I remember there was like a chapter in that book about knights fighting dragons and also looking for the Holy grail. And I didn't know what any of that stuff was in first grade, but it was was like fascinating, right? Like every young boy likes knights and dragons or whatever. Um, But I remember reading about the knights and the Holy grail and it just made an impression on me. And I didn't know what that was until later on when I found it again in my life. And I found, you know, the Freemasons and the Knights Templars and that the Holy Grail could be, you know, the bloodline of Jesus or the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but it's just something like that, you know, and I've also had like also uh, just strange things like paranormal things happen to me. Um, another thing that I mentioned a bunch with, that was also important to this path was, you know, my grandpa telling me at the age of eight years old that he had seen a UFO and uh, which was very shocking for me because I grew up in a Christian and Catholic family. And, um, my grandpa was a pastor. So for him to tell me that he saw UFO and that he believed in aliens was like very shocking for me at eight eight years old. But, um, and I just recently released a live on my YouTube channel about another incident that I haven't really mentioned on podcasts before, but I remember being again around seven or eight years old and I was at summer camp and there was this summer camp, a supervisor who, for whatever reason, decided it was cool or a good idea to to talk to me about the new world order. And I don't remember how we got into the conversation. I just remember we started talking about the Bible and the book of revelation. And then he told me about the the new world order and the, the, the number of the beast and all this stuff and the mark of the beast and warned me about that when I was like seven or eight years old, warned me about the attempt that was going to be had by these elites. So just all my life, I just had these weird little pieces of knowledge and warnings and and, and shocking moments um, when it came to the esoteric, the occult, conspiratorial. I mean, I could tell you endless stories, but, you know, I don't want to take up all the time on that, you know, unless you want to hear more, but, but just as an example, just stuff like that just always kept me going down this path. Mm. Yeah, no, I, you're bringing up memories for me too. I mean, there was one like bumper sticker that somebody put on this uh, telephone pole in this neighborhood that I would always go through and it said research the new world order in big like bold white letters over a black sticker and I'm like whoa what is that you know and I go home and I'm like searching around and I'm like 14 13 I'm hearing rappers kind of mention stuff like this in certain rap songs and yeah it was a big 
big, uh, you know, seed that was planted. And it happens to, I think, people that listen to these types of podcasts in some way, you know, like however you find podcasts, there's usually like a story that goes with it. But yeah, we, we've talked a little bit about this the last time we got together when we went on the Illuminati Confirmed podcast. And I did notice you put some live streams on there. You're talking about an astral projection experience. You also have another video about uh, could AI be, you know, a part of this new world order scheme, which I'm with you there. I think the answer is pretty obvious, but we can maybe get into that uh, later on because I feel like there's a sort of deeper connection that you have to one particular uh, documentary that you put out recently. Um, and it, it connects to Mexico, which I understand you share heritage in Mexico. Uh, so I would love to learn about that. And when you first became interested in, in going back and learning about, you know, your cultural history, your heritage and like who, you know, your ancestors are. I think that's tremendously important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, man. It's, it's an interesting thing because growing up, you know, as a Mexican kid, I guess, right. Like I just always viewed myself as Mexican. You know, when people ask me, you know, what are you know, I'm Mexican. Right. But of course I'm, I'm American first. I mean, I never really like thought in those terms growing up. Right. Like it was, especially when, when we were kids, we didn't think about identity politics. I mean, that's huge. Now it's like, taught in schools, but when we were kids, I mean, that was, that was non-existent. So I didn't think in that manner. I just viewed myself as a, as a kid, as an American person here in California or when I was living in California. But, uh, but I also, I, I was, I, I knew that I was Mexican, you know, and I, and I had pride in that, you know, my family members were Mexican and all that, but it wasn't until later on when I took a college course, um, where it really dawned on me that I wasn't just this simple idea of Mexican, because what I now know is that um, first and foremost, the word Mexican is an indigenous word to that land. And it comes from the word machica, which means the anointed. And so it's a general word for all of the people of that land. And in pre-Columbian times or pre-colonial times, there were different ethnic groups throughout Mexico and they were all had their own, they all had their own culture, their own pride and, and some ethnic uh, differences, but they were all Machica. And it, well, of course the Spaniards came and they did their thing. And, you know, I, we mixed eventually and we created a new ethnic line of people, um, which would be known as different things. You know, now we have Latinx and, and all these different identities for them, Hispanic, um, so I, growing up, I was always like, oh, I'm Mexican, but now I, I have this more kind of complex view of myself. I'm not Mexican because a true Mexican is an indigenous person to that land. And what I, my, the features that I have, uh, and most, you know, modern Mexicans, um, are a mix of the Spaniards and the Mexican. And so I probably have more Spaniard in me than I do Mexican. And, um, it was kind of a bittersweet thing to find out because, you know, all my life I had pride with, with Mexico and the Aztecs and the Mayans and this, this, and that, you know, and the pyramids, but come to find, I'm probably, I mean, for, I'm a mutt for one, but I'm, I'm probably more so Spaniard than anything. And, um, but it's fine though. You know, it's, it's all good. Because no, and as most of us are brother, I mean, Mexico is a 
colony just like where i live in new england's a colony and i'm a mutt too i mean i could sit here and probably list on both hands what my you know connections are to various countries through my ancestors so yeah there, there's no shame in that i think there's a a very interesting story that's playing out and it's unfortunate that the social justice warriors kind of paint this weird light on it. But I think they're, they, they've kind of made the idea of cultural synthesis a bad thing when I really I think there's a good way to do that. You know, there's a way to, to bring out the best in both cultures and fuse them together. We have plenty of examples of that with countries that were just trading with each other and not, you know, colonizing one another. It is a sad and, and tragic story when we get into the finer details of what happened to the Native Americans, not just in Mexico, but all the way far as north as Canada and even, I'm sure, all the way down south to Chile. So, yeah, man, I, I think it's a it's so much more complicated than like, oh, I have this much blood or, you know, like. I've always felt a very strong resonance with the Native American cultures, and I chalk that up to being born in a place where there were more Native Americans here. If you look at the grand scheme of time, the people who I share blood with uh, have only been here for 400 years, so the land has more resonant energy with the Native American culture to my logic. So, yeah, I, I think that we're, we're both in resonance there, man. Yeah. 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 I, I was weird at first, but then, I mean, now it's, it's fine. You know, I, like I said, I, I don't view myself in those ways. You know, I just, I'm Eddie, you know, right. and, and I'm Eddie and I love Mexico. I love America. I love the world, but, but yeah, I have heritage connected to Mexico because of my family members. But one thing that stuck out to me that I've never mentioned before, um, cause it's a little weird I found out through that college course that I was taking and this was all by incident too. I'm sitting there, uh, as I like to say, admittedly on the good old cannabis, you know, taking my course, just eating, you know, it was an online course. I was eating in my house, watching this, this video, our professor had us watching. And, um, I found out where my last name comes from and it's a pretty fascinating story. So my last name is Kano or else it's, pronounced Cano. And I always thought it was an indigenous name, Cano, you know, cause you have Mexicano and stuff like that. But Cano basically is like a, I don't know what you would call that language arts. It's, an, it's like a, a suffix, right? Like a Mexicano is somebody who's Mexican or you can say like a whatever. Right. So, um, but I found out, right. So right at the crux when the Aztecs lost the war and, and eventually you know, were defeated and had to give up. Uh, apparently, uh, Moctezuma, the last Aztec king, his his dying wish was for the new colonizers to take care of his daughter and allow his daughter to assimilate and be a part of the new kingdom. And uh, she was. They took care of her. Uh, I forgot what her actual Aztec name was, but she's no, she's remembered as Doña Isabel you know, or Madam Isabel. And she helped the colonizers because to me, it's actually a romantic tale, really. You know, there's a lot of blood and, and craziness, but it's actually a very romantic tale, you know, poetically speaking. So she, Donya Isabel actually helped the colonizers assimilate, you know, the indigenous into this new world, into this new yeah, civilization that was unfolding. And, and the Mexicans loved her and the Spaniards loved her. So she was this mother figure who helped usher in this new world. And uh, she had a total of five husbands throughout her life. And um, 
they all the first four all mysteriously died or died in mysterious ways and she had some children with some of them i believe but it was her fifth husband who ended up outliving the rest of them you know but ended up dying for her also i think um it was her fifth husband who she had her multitude of her children with and this fifth husband was a royal from spain by the name of uh I, I don't know if I'm getting the first name right, but his name was, I think it was probably, I think it was Juan Cano. So Doña Isabel, the, the last heiress to the Aztec kingdom, had a husband and children with this husband who was a Spaniard royal by the name of Juan Cano, Cano, my last name. And as far as I can tell, he was the first Cano, if not at least the first Royal Cano in Mexico who had uh, kids with the last heiress of the Aztec empire. And, um, I was freaking out again. I'm sitting here learning this just out of the blue. I spit my food out. I'm like freaking out. I'm like, Whoa, what the heck? And, um, so I go on this little tangent to try to like trace my bloodline or my, my lineage to this, to this person. And what I, what I found was, from my, so when my dad was born, my grandpa was already 50. So there's, we have a pretty far reaching ancestry, even with my grandpa. And so what I found though, all that I could find was that there's about 200 years between where my family ends, as far as I know, and where Doña Isabel's family broke off into other last names. So there's about 200 years wow. of research that I would need to like dig into to maybe possibly be able to tie my Kano's into her Kano's. Yeah. And that could be just three people in that 200 year span. I mean, if you think about it, the way people's lifespan, especially, you know, if I'm understanding correctly, people live for pretty long life times in uh that part of the world obviously there's the whole disease conversation when the spaniards come but you know this settlement was very advanced this civilization was very advanced and i if i'm correct the people that were part of the and i want to ask you this to to please clarify later on uh because i know i'll probably use the wrong terms at some point but uh you know they were living very long lifespans. Now, to clarify, we have several different periods of time in Central American history prior to the Spaniards, right? So the oldest that we can determine would be the Olmecs. Then, and this is where I'm, I'm fuzzy, so correct me if I'm wrong. Then it seems there's another culture that is called the Tula or the Toltec, and then there's a... a, a couple different cultures that proceed or follow them uh aztec the mayans and then uh right around the like the end of the let's say pre-columbian period or pre-spaniard period you have like basically the aztecs at the end of of uh what we could say uh, a decline period like they weren't doing good up until when the spaniards came is that am i correct on the the time frame there or yeah, yeah, pretty much. Awesome. Yeah, it was the, the Olmecs and then a couple others like Zapotecs and the Mixtec and then the uh, the Toltec and then the Mayas and the Aztecs. And the Toltecs are pretty much, I guess, in my view, regarded as like the last who were spiritual before things started to get like all weird and mixed up. Mm. Okay. So 
we can connect the Kanos to 200 years before this royal guy gets in there. I mean, this is what these stories are made of, man. I mean, I could see, you know, a really cool book being written uh, by yourself that starts with this as like the forward or the first chapter. It reminds me of other researchers. There's this sort of theme with researchers like yourself where strange things happen in their childhood and even in their, you know, genetic lineage that predispose them to this type of research. I haven't done much uh, of my own looking into my own genealogy, but yeah, that's fascinating, man. It's definitely something that could give you that fuel to keep going, you know, at the, at the low points, but let's, yeah. uh, let's get into the, the finer details here. Cause I, I understand that there's a really interesting uh, theory that you have about Mexico and why we, you know, see what we see there today with the cartels and this like really uh, what seems from the outside like an unstable infrastructure. Now, this is an outsider's perspective, so I could be wrong, but it seems like there's a, a very strange occult uh, atmosphere there as well. Uh, and it could be because Mexico has been cursed. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, man. It's kind of just a, a theory or an opinion that I've kind of developed over the years. And for those who don't know, um, Mexico is riddled with occultism primarily, uh, uh, because of this, this cults or religion by the name of Santa Muerte, which translates to uh, the saint of death, you know, and it's very common there, very common there for, for people to believe in this patron saint of death, um, who was kind of like a good, good luck figure in Mexico and, and kind of relates to the day of the dead thing, but not really like we just have a, we have a, a comfortability in Mexico with death. You know, we, that's why we, we celebrate our dead ones, um, during the day of the dead. And then, you know, we're, we're okay with, with, uh, morbid or, or dark imagery, you know, that's, that's always been a part of our culture. I mean, you can see even in Aztec and Mayan artwork, you'll see skeletons and stuff like that. So we, as a people, we're just comfortable with death and the, the imagery of it. But uh, there is a, a religion and I'm not an expert and to be honest, I haven't even studied it that much, probably should, but I don't even know the history behind Santa Muerte, but all I know is it's very prevalent and I've heard stories and I've heard documentaries about it and I've met people in my personal life and, and I know people back home that partake in it, but it's just a strange thing, man. It's a strange thing. And, and to, there's an altar that kind of looks like the Virgin Mary, but it's a skeleton that is like the more common one that people pray to among the many other weird voodoo and occult type things that we do over there. And, uh, um, and the weird thing is that all the cartels or most of the cartels in Mexico um, believe in this religion. That's kind of the default religion of the cartels over there is Santa Muerte because they partake in killing every day. You know, if it's not through actual killing or through the selling of, of lethal drugs and all these type of things. And there, there, I don't know if most people know if you uh, if people know this or not, but for those who don't, um, 
there was a shift in what we call corrido music, kind of like, you know, the typical um, Mexican music that you'll hear at like birthday parties or whatever, right? Like with the accordion and whatever, like the Mexican ranch music, corridos and, and stuff like that. There was a shift in that music. I'd say, and I noticed it, it was like around 2010 where it kind of similar to like a rap um, corridos uh, artists started to like sing about cartels and it, and to this day, it's very famous now. It's kind of taken over the spheres in a similar way. We're like over here in America, trap music has kind of taken over the airwaves and we just love trap music. And it's all about, uh, yeah, again, just murder, sex and, and drugs. The, the, there's artists that have taken over the corrido sound or the Mexican, you know, um, folk music. And instead of singing about love and heartache and the things you, you know, your family and, and the land and stuff like that, it's now just all about killing and, and sex and drugs. And the young people love it. And when I was in high school, you know, having Mexican friends, they loved it. You know, that was, that was their shit, you know? And, and but I always thought it was kind of a, honestly just kind of sad to see you know because it was just driving us further and further into this madness of a glorifying cartel culture and uh so our land right mexico is just full of this occult vibe of this cartel vibe and what makes it worse too is that the young people out there see it as a benefit to work for the cartel in the same way that like when Pablo Escobar was around, he was, um, you know, giving back to the communities. So they loved him. They saw him as a, as a good figure. It's just one of those tough things, man, where it's like, what's good, what's bad, you know, what's evil. Mm. It's, it's all a thin line. Well, and that's like the mafiosos and the, you know, in the immigrant culture in the East coast, you know, it's like they were, they took care of the neighborhood. They didn't go and murder people in their own neighborhood. They, they took care of the people in their neighborhood. So they didn't have any rats. They didn't have any snitches going and telling people what they saw, you know, the mafiosos and all these gentlemen doing, uh, you know, I think that's a part of it too. Like you see that with the East Coast rap culture, kind of taking on that persona of uh, but Mafia Don and all that stuff. Absolutely, man. I mean, I give a lot of credit to underground rap music for sort of helping me wake up. You know, rappers like Immortal Technique and Cannabis, and uh, on and on and on. There's so many examples. But they talk about that, too, and how there's like this perpetual violence that is emotionally established in people's minds through this music, man. And yeah, I I don't speak Spanish, so I, I have never, you know, really observed that, you know, firsthand. But hearing you describe it, it, it definitely rhymes with what we see in, you know, and I'm sure you know this, you live in the States, with what we see in the urban uh, areas, you know, where people are glorifying this culture that if you look at it from an outside perspective, it might be like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. I can understand how it's empowering to some degree when that's all, you know, uh, but from the further, further outside perspective, you realize like, wow, this is contributing to the majority of the problems, uh, this drug trafficking, uh, sickness, uh, and it's not Mexico's fault, you know, it's not, it's not Mexico's fault at all. It's, it's the, uh, you know, system that's been set up to funnel drugs from those places to this country where there's so much wealth that it creates this, you know, economy, this black market economy, you know, and, 
And it's not only bad for Mexico, but it's terrible for us in the U.S. Yeah, man, it's just we live in weapon world, Mm. you know, we live in weapon world. And I mean, it's just I don't know. Uh, And we we maybe want to take it back a little bit because it is. uh, Yeah, it's a little bit of a rough topic to get into, but. Maybe we can go and approach it from the historical context and get into this, you know, evil sorcerer character. Maybe I'm I'm yeah. mischaracterizing him, but he he maybe is responsible for this curse somehow, or at least the obsession with the occult and death. Yeah, man. Okay, so quick background about um, like Aztec and Mayan history. So when the Spaniards came they pretty much burned like 98% of the remaining books of the Aztec and Mayans and destroyed just a whole bunch of artifacts. And it's in a turn of miss, you know, in a turn of unfortunate events, uh, the same people who burned all of those books actually ended up being the ones who also luckily wrote down a lot of notes, uh, on what the Aztec and Mayan customs and beliefs were. And those translations are like pretty much the remaining pieces of information we have on the Aztec and Mayans. We have, I think like maybe a handful of like uh, genuine Aztec codexes, um, but the rest are all these like translations from um, colonial um, uh, writers who weren't all bad you know some of them like the florentine codex was actually put together by uh one of the spaniards and a lot of the indigenous people he, he basically employed them to tell tell him their stories and, and, and their beliefs and actually had them illustrate them too yeah. so they helped they oh i've seen these yeah man i've seen these and i'll share a link to some of the images in the episode description um me and my buddy michael Wan, who is researching the Susquehanna uh, River in Pennsylvania. He's made a lot of connections between some petroglyphs in the Susquehanna River to possibly Mayan and Aztec culture, which is very interesting. But we did a whole episode on those codexes. uh, And yeah, it was fascinating. And the detail, the artistry that went into that, you see that and then you look at the explanations that they give us for what these people were like. They say they were Indians, they didn't have any culture, you know, all this derogatory stuff. How do you explain how like they made that? Like it's so beautiful yeah. and like apparently they never had tools like that to create art before the Spanish came, so they were just naturals. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so among all of those stories emerges the story of uh Tezcatlipoca um which was this uh evil wizard as I've coined him and does that docu- does that sorry to interrupt you again but does that word mean hummingbird am I right about that is there something about a hummingbird that fits into this or am I f- taking another story and shoehorning it in yeah, you're thinking about um, he's he has a hard name to pronounce, but I think it's like Huitzilopochtli. It's it's with an H though. It's that's okay. a, a different, different god. Okay, Tezcatlipoca roughly translates to um, smoking mirror, 
And uh, he's he's known he's a trickster god. He's this sorcerer god who would carry around a mirror with him, which kind of uh, is like a symbol for his his deception. You know his his magic like abilities. You know because he would do all these weird little magic tricks and stuff. So that was his name, Smoking Mirror. But um, the book that I got this information from that I that I made the documentary from is a book known as the gospel of the Toltecs um, by Frank Diaz. I wrote, I read that years ago when I was like taking this college course and getting back into my roots a little bit. And it fascinated me. And uh, Diaz's book is a culmination of, or an amalgamation of all these different stories and fragments um, from all the lost knowledge put together. So he put all these different fragments together and gave us the chronological order of uh, Tezcatlipoca's story. And it's a fascinating story. So like we mentioned, we had the Olmecs and then a couple other cultures and then the Toltecs. And then after the Toltecs, it was basically the mind and the Aztecs and then the decline. The Olmecs are, are a mystery to this day. You know, they actually set the, the foreground for what would be the rest of the Mexican culture and art style and, and spiritual belief system. And then after them started coming these other people. But uh, the kingdom in question here is the Toltec. So the Toltec going, so Frank Diaz's story starts with this guy by the name of Human the Elder. And, and again, these are all, what I'm telling you are, you know, real stories being told to us from um, Mayan and Toltec people. So these are actual legendary tales. It'd be like opening up the Bible in a way. So, in this story, it starts with Human the Elder saying a prophecy. And Human the Elder is given this prophecy right around 33 BC. And Human says that he has been alive for about 300 years. And he has seen his Toltec people from inception to that point in time. And Human the Elder uh, says that there will come a a day where this king will rise and he will be a great king and he will, he will face trouble and strife and he will lose the kingdom and he will find defeat and the kingdom will fall to that enemy. But that king will carry on as a spiritual leader forever to be remembered as that spiritual leader who helped revive a spirit in Mexico as this new age was dawning before he left before he left mysteriously so that's human the elders prophecy and then diaz kicks into the story at full speed and um, i'll just kind of summarize it but the story is about a legendary leader who kind of like christ there is some pseudo information on um there's not much real evidence for his existence but there are stories about him like the apostles and their their gospels and this king is his name his uh Toltec name was which means one read because uh, they would name their children based on the day or the year that they were born in. So he was born in one read. So uh, we can just call them one read or read for short. And um, so one read was, was born and his dad was the king of the Toltec kingdom, but his dad was murdered by his uncles. And then his uncles tried to dispose of him, but they were unsuccessful. And, and the tales kind of tell this like a uh, symbolic tale of him, them trying to kill him like five or seven different ways. And they're all like symbolic. Like one of them's like throwing him into like a pit of ants and the ants actually carry him to like safety. So they're all like these symbolic 
like deaths or, or attempts at deaths. And eventually um, he's thrown in a river and the uncles think, all right, we did, we've done it. You know, he's got to drown. He's a baby, but he actually just floats down the river and this like elderly couple finds him and then brings him in and takes him under their wing. And uh, when he's old enough, they tell him, you know, who he really is and tell him about his dad. And so he gets this courage instilled in him. And eventually he goes back and he kills his uncles and he takes over the kingdom. But before he's initiated into being the king, he, he goes into uh, education under the priesthood, under the Toltec priesthood. And he goes into meditation for uh, a number of years from the age of 27 to about 30 or 33 and then after he comes out of that meditation and, you know, uh, monkhood pretty much, he's ready to be a king. So he becomes a king and he rules and the kingdom flourishes under him. Everybody loves him. He uh, gives, you know, um, awards to those who are crafty and who are hard workers. And it's just, it's just flourishing. Everybody loves it. They're having a great time. And then out of nowhere, you know, becomes this weird sorcerer um, starting off in the forest. He comes into the kingdom through the forest and he, he's known as a shapeshifter. And he first appears as an old man to this bystander who's gathering firewood. And he appears as this crippled old guy and he walks up to him and he says, hey, I'm, I'm looking for one reed. And he says, well, that's my king, you know? And he's like, I need, and the old man says, I need to speak to him. And he says, well, that's, that's the king. You can't just speak to the king. And he says, and then the old man picks up a dead flower or the, the sorcerer picks up a dead flower and turns it back to life and says, here, give him this and tell him that I need to speak to him. And this spooks out the guy and he runs away and tells his king what had happened. And this king goes to see him, goes to the forest to find this weird old man. And when he goes there, he finds the old man, but the old man is delirious and kind of, um, you know, dazed and doesn't know what he's talking about. He's like, I don't know. I didn't ask for you. So it's, it's this weird, like, um, what's the word? It's, it's like, uh, foreshadowing, you know, what's, what's to come. And Tezcatlipoca is playing mind games. She starts to sow, you know, the thoughts of doubt and, and, and fear and angst, anxiety in one read from then. And it just, and the story goes on and there's all these just strange trials and tribulations that Tezcatlipoca puts on to get or one read. And uh, slowly but surely he breaks down one reads spiritual guard and also the spiritual guard of the people starting with sex in Tezcatlipoca enters a kingdom disguised as a whore with a couple other whores and tries to instigate, you know, one read into having sex with them, with them. And one read, he's, he's a spiritual guy. One read is always paying. And an interesting thing about the story is no matter what happens, no matter what, you know, obstacle Tezcatlipoca puts in front of one read, he always resorts to meditation, which I think is a, was, was said in purpose, you know, it's, it's purposeful. It's kind of a, a, a symbol to the power of meditation, but um, one read refuses because he's a celibate monk and, and he's spiritual, but some of the townspeople see these horrors coming in and out of the, the, the temple, the Royal temple. And they start to think that, you know, there's 
prostitution going on. So they start to get envious and some of them start to partake into prostitution. And then some of the priests start to take into prostitution. And then some of the women of the kingdom start to get jealous. And so they start to kind of throw themselves out there promiscuously. So it starts with sex. So Tescali Pokem breaks everybody's moral morality down with sex. And then he starts to do a couple other things. And eventually he starts to, uh, kind of like rally the people against the kingdom, against the empire and, and show that the empire is weak. And there's this one scene in the story that's pretty maddening where he, Tescali Polka takes like hundreds of people and uh, gives them like a mushroom tea or something. And, and they're all just days out of their mind tripping out. And he's there, he's playing drums and flutes and marching them through the forest saying, you know, F this kingdom, you know, we, let's leave. And he actually leads these hundreds of people who are tripping on shrooms and, you know, basically at a rave with all these drums and stuff playing super loud and fast. And he leads them off a cliff just letting hundreds of people fall off this cliff and die. And it says in the story that, you know, some of them are trying to, you know, come back up. Some of the survivors are trying to climb up and he just bashes them in the head. So he's just this maniacal uh, guy who just, just keeps instigating things behind the scenes. And uh, eventually, you know, he just tears down it all. He just tears it all down. And, and all these weird bad omens start to show up and, and the people think that, you know, like there's famine, there's droughts and there's these strange omens and, and, and Tescali Polka gets it. Uh, the people to believe that all of this is happening because of one read and that it's one reads fault. So the people, um, but right before the last act that he does is that he convinces the people, Tescali Polka convinces the people that in order to end all this famine and destruction and, and, and craziness that's been going on is that they need to go to the neighboring kingdom and sacrifice the king's daughter. And the people, they're, they're like, okay with it. You know, they're like, yeah, if that's what it takes, you know, so they take the king's daughter, the neighboring king's daughter, and they sacrifice her in front of the city. And then from there, all hell breaks loose. And now human sacrifice is introduced to the kingdom and to Mexico for the first time, according to these legends. And it just gets crazy. I mean, there's parts of the story where uh, one of Tezcali Polka's servants skins an old kills an old lady skins her face and then wears it and runs around the city and then people start believing that if you sacrifice one another or oneself that it, that will bring you know abundance to the land so all this is going on and while this is all going on one reed is just trying to meditate keep his cool keep his calm but the people turn against him and then uh he basically gets driven out of the kingdom and as he leaves the kingdom with his last band of followers who are still loyal to him and as he leaves, you know, he tells them to uh, abandon their riches, abandon everything that they knew and that they, that they own and that, you know, the Toltec kingdom is no more. Uh, I'll take a, take a break from there. If you, if you want to chime in or have any questions. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Um, go ahead and take a drink of water. I didn't mean to uh, leave you hanging there, but <laughs> When you, you got into the point about the smoky mirror, my mind started going and I, I started connecting some dots and I'm sure you've possibly thought of this before, uh, but I just wanted to double check to make sure the dates would even line up. But John D had an obsidian mirror and I'm wondering, you know, uh, is it possible that there was some sort of 
you know, trickster entity that was operating through this smoky mirror or this, yeah, this, this mirror that this guy had. And, you know, maybe that not the same mirror, but that same quality. Cause it was also obsidian. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was an obsidian. You didn't say that. I'm just adding that in, but John D certainly had an obsidian mirror and they say there's no, story as to how he got that particularly he says that an angel uriel gave it to him but i mean if the spanish were uh, already in the new world by the time john d was alive then it's most likely uh, probable that he got it from somebody who came back yeah yeah i think the, the toltec empire must have been like in uh around 300 a.d if i'm correct but um, what's fascinating, though, is obsidian is native or natural in Mexico. Right. And and uh, most of the daggers and knives were made out of obsidian. Um, I actually just went to Mexico recently, and they were showing us um, some, like, cool obsidian artifacts. But, yeah, no, obsidian is, like, w- was highly regarded in, in ancient Mexico. Mm. So... There could be a connection there. There could be a weird trickster spirit. Well, yeah, yeah and, and I mean, I have a lot of crystals. I don't think that any of them possess some kind of spirit inside of them, but they're also, you know, fairly um, handled before they get to me. You know, they go through all sorts of processes outside of my own control before I buy it in a crystal store. I've never mined crystals myself, but I had to imagine that if you get your own obsidian from the right source in the right ceremony, Maybe it has some sort of deity or, or consciousness that's attached to it. Because um, John D, I mean, he talked about these tutelary spirits, you know, these energy spirits of the land. And uh, allegedly that helped them uh, find the right places to lay roots in the early, you know, colonies in North America. I actually had a researcher on this show, Peter Shampoo, who talks about a ley line that connects from the Aztec, um, you know, pyramid complex all the way, this straight line that goes through most, if not every major city along the East Coast up into where I live. And what's strange, why that's so important to me is because I've been researching Skull and Bones for almost 10 years now uh, since I met a gentleman from Arizona who told me all about Geronimo and how his skull was taken by Prescott Bush to the tomb in New Haven. And you talked earlier about the, you know, morose and morbid imagery and symbology that's very present in those cultures. And, you know, I don't think this, this was a part of the Toltec society, but the Aztecs were certainly sacrificing people and, I mean, if you buy into the darker conspiracies about Skull and Bones, they were possibly behind the sacrificial killing of the king, JFK, or or even the sacrificial uh, destruction of the towers in 9-11. I mean, it's, it, it goes that far, and, and who knows what the occult significance of that is, but there's certainly that ley line connection. I mean, it's certainly strange. Yeah. Have you ever thought about what the the 322 in Skull and Bones means? Yeah. Everybody asks me that. Everybody asks me that. I've heard the theories that, you know, there's one that makes the most sense to me uh, that nobody likes is that it was founded in 1832 and it's the second chapter of a German organization. So they just took the number two and added it to 
32 for the year, but there's also the more uh, interesting theory about Demosthenes, some Greek god of something or other that they t- took a liking to and put that in honor of him. But uh, Graham, Hank, uh, Graham Dunlop from the Grimerica show actually had the most interesting uh, connection to 322, and I don't remember what he said. So if you have something, please share it. Yeah, I just, this just came across as I was doing other research about the Bible. I found that the verse in Genesis, Genesis three twenty two, says, and I'll, I'll read uh, directly from here. And the Lord God said that man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Boom. Wow. That makes sense. <laughs> right. It's like, they're all about like, you know, trying to be God. It's, I just thought that was fascinating. It's like, and man has now become like one of us. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And in, in light of what I learned about new Haven, and this is a big tangent from what we were just talking about, but the New Haven Green itself, which um, has thousands of bodies buried under it. Now it's a public park that people walk on. Uh, but it was designed to be able to fit exactly 144,000 people, like it says in the book of Revelations about 144,000 souls being saved and brought up to heaven. Not to mention, you can interpret the name New Haven, Connecticut, where Skull and Bones is, as New Heaven, right? New Jerusalem. And there's even uh, the Angel of Peace, uh, Mary Magdalene, portrayed in a statue on one of the big rock features uh, that you can see in the skyline of the city. So, yeah, man, I mean, Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, the Deus des Muertos, right? I mean, there's definitely some rhyming going on here for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. It's a weird game being played. All the it's the same players, just <clears throat> same players, just different language, you know? Right, right. And <clears throat> we have to consider that, you know, what is now Mexico politically, the border is not what it was in the times of that we're discussing here. We're talking about, you know, a trade network that went throughout the Gulf of Mexico, uh, throughout Florida, Texas, up the Mississippi River. Uh, another researcher who was on the show recently, uh, Rick Osmond, he was talking about how they had a patented type of pottery. It was a specific brand of pottery that would contain cocoa or cacao, right? And they would sell it all throughout the North America and it could only have come from Mexico and South America, right? That's the only place it grows. So there was clearly a larger, larger trade network and cross-cultural pollination going on here. And yeah, man, I, I think personally, I know that again, this is tangential, but you'll definitely find it interesting. My thought is that Skull and Bones took the the mantle up from the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians who saw the new world, saw the occult nature of the new world and went in and subsumed it. Like they took it over and inverted it so that they had the connection to the land and the natives didn't. And it's tragic. You know, you see that in the reservations, right? They, that's why they moved everybody away from their homeland and disconnected them from their their people and mix them all up. And yeah, it's just, 
it's just that that's you know what i'm working on right now is some skull and bones research if you couldn't tell but uh (laughs) dude i just uh stumbled upon i i've always heard this book about this book but i didn't actually get into it into it until today and that is um the creature from jekyll island Mm. Yeah. Have you have you read that one? I have it. it. I, I haven't read it yet, but it's right behind me on my shelf here for sure. Own it. But yeah. So apparently, and I don't think he, he mentions this in the book, but this is from a, a different person, a part of that whole field of study. But uh, the creature from Jekyll Island is about how the Federal Reserve came to be from Jekyll Island off of the coast of Georgia. But there's this other guy, he's like a Christian guy um, from like, I think like the 80s or 90s, who... Uh, also found out in his studies that on Jekyll Island are like just this and in Georgia, uh, there's a bunch of these Indian burial grounds and on the, the, the building where the, the federal reserve was instituted underneath that building, there is an altar belonging to a strange set of eight to nine foot skeletal, uh, you know, quote unquote Indians, um, who would sacrifice children on that altar. Whoa. And wait, so the federal reserve building that you're talking about, that's in Virginia, right? Isn't that? No, no. So what I'm talking about is, is, uh, so the federal reserve came together through. Okay. In Jekyll Island. And that's where this altar is apparently. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And this is not that far off from other things I've heard. Uh, about that area and Florida is pretty close and the Spaniards as a matter of fact uh, when they were exploring Florida they remembered seeing these big pale giant uh, natives that were uh, very different and cannibalistic and very different from the other natives that we remember traditionally uh, and they're feared by the natives like hey stay away from those big tall giants they'll eat your kids yeah yeah it's strange there's i think they're called the timikua but uh there's like this yeah these strange skeletal remains over on jekyll island and somewhere in the area of these like eight to nine foot what we would call native americans but i mean they're different than any other native american group you know they're eight to nine feet tall and they have these like seemingly middle eastern styled altars and I don't know how they came to the conclusion, but apparently by looking at the altars and whatever, and some of the imagery left behind, they would sacrifice children on those altars um, and uh, and uh, on Jekyll Island. And yeah, that's where the Federal Reserve was created, was on that island where all this weird stuff took place. And they built right over those stuff. And some of the other cabins that have become historical, like museum type stuff over there on Jekyll Island, actually have plexiglass built onto the floor where you can look through and see some of these skeletons. What? Oh man. And the Rockefellers and a lot of their rich friends back in like the early 1900s owns that Island and deliberately built over these burial grounds. And right. Well, and it seems like that's a a practice and it's definitely not a coincidence. If anything, they are seeking these places out and and utilizing them for their energy resonance. I mean, uh, uh, the person I was talking about who told me about Geronimo's skull, I just met with him recently. I consider him a mentor of mine. And he talked about how on New Haven's Green, 
you see people walking weird, almost like they're zombified. Like, and we're talking about the homeless people that sleep on the green, but there's like, there's, you know, to bring it back to what you were saying earlier about the Mexican respect for the dead. It's like, there's a truth to that when you're not respectful of a grave site, like evil things can come into your body. Your life force can be zapped from you. Potentially. I, I think there's a lot of, truth to that and maybe that's why they build these sites uh and these certain structures on these locations to you know manipulate the people who are going to be working for them in these buildings possibly i don't know but maybe we could go back to what you're saying earlier about the codexes because another thing amos told me a long time ago was that the spanish had a had a book that they used uh, before they ever landed on the shores of South America or, or Mesoamerica or even North America, they f- had some sort of Mayan or Aztec codex uh, that they knew, you know, all these things about the culture. Have you heard about this before? Um, I've heard of stuff like it. Uh, Diaz in his book refers to what is known as the Teo Moxley, which uh, means the divine book, you know, but just like the burning of Alexandria or the library of Alexandria, I mean, we, we lost almost everything there was to know about, you know, our Mexican people through the, you know, the, the colonization, but yeah, we probably lost so much interesting and fascinating stuff, but um yeah, that's the only one I've heard of was the Teo Moxley, which is the divine book, which which apparently had all, held all sacred knowledge and history of uh, our Mexican people. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's so many fascinating uh, facets of this story and the history of this place. And I have a couple maps over my dining room table of uh that the Yucatan Peninsula particularly, and it shows like all the different archeological spots and whatnot. And I love just looking at it. There's so many things to, to take, uh, take apart and examine, but I've never been outside of the States, not yet. So who knows, fingers crossed. If I ever do get down there, maybe I could uh, <laughs> contract you to help me make my way around. I'm sure you know a little more than I do, but yeah, man, if you want to switch gears, cause I know you you cover a lot of different topics on your uh, YouTube channel with various documentaries and your book is about an entirely different subject from what we've discussed here today. So if anything, credit to you for being so well-versed, man. I appreciate being able to uh, go into that. Is there anything that you want to leave us with uh, on that particular subject before we switch topics? Anything you were hoping to say or add? Yeah, yeah, man. It's just, it's a fascinating story. You know, uh, definitely read Diaz's book. Also check out my documentary at Esoteric TV. But yeah, man, that's just kind of my, my view of it, man. It's like, I think that it, I, in my humble belief, I think that it was Tezcalipoca and everything that he did that at least set the domino effect that would become the occult riddled and, and murderous riddled Mexico that we have today. And, uh, there's some beautiful things too. Um, 
that happened later on in one reads life when he becomes a spiritual leader and he actually leaves us behind some very cool sayings and ways of life that I get into in the documentary. And he basically says, just never forget the Toltec way, you know, the spiritual way. And he ends up burning himself on fire, you know, very, just goes out like a G, you know, like a real spiritual guy. And, um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, check out the documentary. It's a fascinating story. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is plenty more for people to get into. Uh, I think that documentary is about 40 minutes long. So yeah, you definitely have been cutting your teeth and and diving into some fascinating topics. Another one that I saw that I wanted to ask you about was uh, Shambhala in Tibet. And, you know, this maybe connects even because I've heard uh, a past guest, Freddie Silva, who that episode just came out a few days ago. He told me that the Olmecs were possibly um, getting to this part of the world from the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, Tibet, that's kind of on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, maybe really far inland. But, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a connection there. But what have you learned about Shambhala and the Tibetan cultures? All right. So, uh Shambhala comes from from in a pre-Buddhist Tibetan culture. Shambhala and like Shangri-La was made famous in like the you know 30s and like 40s through a lot of German writers actually. And I think the first like pop culture piece of literature that mentioned Shambhala where it actually mentioned Shangri-La was a book by the name of Lost Horizon. Um, and that book talked about like this, this it was kind of like an Indiana Jones type of adventure book, but it talked about Tibet and like this, this hidden kingdom within Tibet and this lost city. And so that kind of sparked a lot of interest and a lot of intellectual minds at the day and during the day. And there was another book that, uh, actually like really shook me after I read it. Um, because I think it's like a, a, a literary piece of just just genius, but it's, it's, uh, it was written by again, another German writer by the name of uh, Theodore Ilion. And he wrote a book name or a novel by the name of darkness over Tibet. And this again was like a huge, you know, a popular book in, at the time. And uh, it was again, a, a personal story. He wrote this as, as a factual story. He says, this was a factual story about him uh, escapating through Tibet, trying to f- seek out gurus and, and wis- wisdom. And he comes across this secret society that lives in like this underground city and that they're cannibals and that they, he never mentions Lucifer, but he says that their, their leader was this guy that they called the Prince of light. So we can kind of, you know, make that speculation, but so there was a lot of this literature happening around the thirties and forties about Tibet and Shangri-La and Shambhala and these, these dark yogis that could levitate and, and do all these weird stuff. And then of course you have like uh, the theosophists, right? Actually uh, like half a century before then almost like uh, Madame Blavatsky who claimed to be in contact with the Tibetans and these like ascended masters. So there was a lot of generality coming from the Western world about Tibet. Cause it was, it was an easy target for like mystical intrigue, you know? Um, but so all of, but all of that even, got so influential that even the Nazis had some expeditions out to Tibet, you know, the Nazis through their Ananurb, which was like their, uh, 
organization, the governmental organization that was created to seek out um, archaeological evidence and historical evidence for the Aryan race um, thought that they could find some evidence for that in Tibet. So there's actually pictures of Nazi soldiers with, you know, Tibetan monks and stuff. So there was a lot of intrigue during those times about Tibet. And what I found in my research is that a whole, that whole Shambhala myth comes from a, a pre-Buddhist text known as the Kala Chakra uh, text. And um, I haven't read it. I haven't been able to find a, a good translation of it, but I've read people, you know, scholars and authorities um, on on the Kala Chakra text. And the Kala Chakra is actually kind of like a prophetic book. And it talks about this ancient Tibetan kingdom by the name of Shang Shun. And uh, so apparently there was this ancient kingdom by the name of Shang Shun in like Northwest Tibet. And it, uh, apparently it was this huge kingdom that, you know, could, that rivaled almost Imperial China at the time and even kind of, you know, uh, expanded some of its borders into China or whatever. But uh, slowly it, it kind of decayed, especially when um, the king, one of the king's wives um, was seduced again by like a, this wizard guy type of dude. One of his uh, daughters, um, or no, sorry, one of his wives was seduced by this other king to betray him. So the king was betrayed and then it basically came to its defeat. And uh, there's all these cool tales, man, about like these Shang Shun yogis and Shang Shun sorcerers, both good and evil, kind of battling it out. But eventually Shang Shun falls and becomes kind of like almost this Atlantean legendary city. Um, and even the, the Tibetan Buddhists you know, talk about Shang Shun. And there are some some archaeological evidence for uh, actual Shang Shun kingdom, but it's more legendary than anything. But it was the Shang Shun people that told us about this uh, place called, uh, what was it called? Tajik or Tajik. And it was a mystical city that was later transformed from out of this realm. And the Kala Chakra text talks about that. It talks about Tajik, which is basically synonymous with what we know as Shambhala, um, being hidden from the world because we became undeserving. So after Shang Shun fell and the people became, you know, just, just barbarous and lost the Shang Shun way, Tajik or its center or Shambhala became hidden. It, it got transported to a realm parallel to ours or, or almost like hidden within the, the spectrum of light or whatever, you know, existing in a different plane or parallel dimension. And the Kala Chakra talks about that in the end of days, um, you know, there'll be enemies that intrude into Tibet and, and this war that's going to happen is going to be so wild and dangerous that it's going to cause Shambhala to be opened again. And out of the doors will come this Messiah figure who will come and actually destroy these evil doers and then gather and rally his people and then go back to Shambhala one last time before they close the doors for good. Wow. I mean, <clears throat> Immediately, my mind went to Tajikistan, which is a country next to Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, and a bunch of other uh, of those Central Asian countries. And it is sort of uh, sort of located in that same region. It's sort of east of 
of the, or I'm sorry, west of the, uh, what we now consider Tibet. But who knows, maybe in those days it could have, uh, you know, been translated and and remained a part of that culture as Tajikistan. But that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I've heard a lot about Shambhala. Where do you fall on the, the hollow earth thing? Because there's so much talk about these underground cities and caverns. Even here in the States, we have uh, Mount Shasta has a bunch of underground stuff underneath it, apparently. And even down in Southwest America, the Hopi talk about surviving a cataclysm by being brought underground by ant people, which ancient aliens has you know hammered this point in ad nauseum but the anunnaki and then the the hopi word is very similar yeah yeah i love the hollow earth theory and and uh, i believe in it i mean because we have caves yeah i mean we we can see that there are caves and there are humongous caves all around the world so we can only assume that some of these caves lead further and further and there might be unexplored parts of these caves or just altogether unexplored caves, you know, in, in Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula, there are some crazy number, like thousands of cenotes and cenotes are these hollowed out, uh, cave structures pretty much that, that go down sometimes hundreds of feet. And at the bottom of them are like these beautiful lakes that you can go swim in, but even underneath those are more caverns and whatnot. So yeah, man, there's definitely some hollow earth stuff going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think there was something else that I was saying there, but I forgot it too. Don't worry about that. We've talked <laughs> about uh, dark shaman, not shamans, but like dark sorcerers that have come up in two areas of the world. But I know you, you spent a lot of time researching this Lucifer character. Uh, do you think there's a certain archetype at foot here? Like, do you see aspects of Lucifer in those two characters we discussed before? Or do you think there's an entirely different archetype uh, at play with Lucifer? I think Lucifer came later, you know, at least uh, contextually. Um, because of, we don't see that word until the Latin Vulgate, which was the Latin translation of the Bible in the fourth century. Right. AD. I, I think I mean more like, you know, not that Lucifer, you know, preempted them or anything, but like there's a, a cultural archetype that exists there uh, in, the you know, Tibet in Mexico. And then it expresses itself maybe later on in Western culture as Lucifer or is that maybe a, just a different sort of symbol set? Yeah, no, I think there is an archetype there for sure. There, there's always been like this archetype of a trickster or, or rebellious or even maniacal spirit, you know, throughout all cultures. And it could be a real thing, man. It could like, if we break it down into like Gnostic terms or like simulation terms, it's like, there's really only the one. And then there's like these, these rays of archetypes and they just kind of change shape, change name over time. And, and I, sometimes I view it that way. Like, for example, sometimes I feel like all of the divine feminine or all of the feminine aspects are kind of just one way or another, just the Gnostic Sophia, and like Sophia, like in the Gnostic way, kind of just forgot where she came from and like has to get back to that source. So it's almost like this like Neo and Agent Smith thing where like, especially in the newer Matrix, which a lot of fans didn't like, but I liked how like they 
lost or forgot who they were. So that's kind of how I view it sometimes. Like these archetypes get reborn or rehashed and they forget who they are, but it becomes dangerous when they remember who they are. So it's like no matter what life or what time period or what culture these archetypes get reinstated in, they always have an inclination to go back to their true self, which is this is either this evil, you know, force or this good force. So all throughout history, we're really just witnessing this ongoing battle of this good divine feminine and it's like evil you know uh divine i guess masculine right right yeah there's definitely something larger at play it's never just like one culture you know i've been using the word rhyme a lot lately but it seems to rhyme you know there's this correlation that crosses all these boundaries and yeah, man, I was just, you brought up the Matrix, so here we go, but uh, Keanu Reeves, I was just looking into his life story and his history a little bit, and the first play that he ever acted in, believe it or not, would you stop? I can't, I can't, you can't keep talking to me, Tara, while I'm talking. I, you keep distracting me. Well, we can't hear you because you're not on the mic, so just stop. You already did. So, all right. So, sorry about that. So, uh, the first play that Keanu Reeves ever acted in was the Faustian, uh, a Faustian legend. It's this play called Damn Yankees. It's a modern retelling of this Faustian legend, the deal with the devil, the bargain with Lucifer for knowledge. And, you know, maybe it's not Lucifer, but yeah, fill in the blanks here. Is that part of uh, what you've researched, this Faustian story? Yeah, man. It's just like, I don't know. It's just, yeah. I mean, for example, I mean, where my mind goes with this is for strangely enough is with DMX, right? The rapper who just recently passed away. He is an interesting guy, man. Like he, he didn't hold back when it came to talking about spiritual things hmm. and he, you can find a lot of interviews out there of him. If you haven't watched him before talking about the devil and people selling their souls and God. And, and he claims he's met the devil. I think he said he met the devil in Arizona, but uh, <laughs> sounds about right, dude. Super oh, hot. man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. And then of course, like Christ, right. In the story of Christ, Christ is tempted when he's out in the desert meditating and then one read and then the story of the Toltecs is continually instigated, but always falls back into meditation. So it's like, there's always this like, you know, like sly, you know, car salesman figure that shows up throughout time. who's just trying to instigate us and, and give us a deal. You know, I got a good deal for you. And then we always fall for it. And we never know that the fine print is our soul. So it's so that deal or that bargain, is always happening but it's like the it just changes its form yeah yeah and we see that playing out man i mean bringing it back to mexico you see this sort of energy there that yeah it seems to uh lend itself to that crime and uh, death and as i was saying before with this connection through that empire ley line that peter shampoo mapped out uh in all these major cities, tremendous amounts of crime. We have the music being played. It's it's reinforcing this violent message. I don't think that's by accident. I mean, music is vibrational. People are living in attunement with the 
energy that's in the earth. And if this ley line has been conducting negative energy for long enough, that's going to emanate and have that subtle influence on people. But yeah, DMX, I, I hadn't learned that about him. Uh, I'm glad you shared it. It's sad to hear that he passed away. It's my understanding though, that he was, uh, you know, on a significant amount of hard drugs. And, you know, that's usually something that they use to discredit people, especially celebrities and say, oh, well, they're just drug abusers, which, I mean, there's so many gray areas with that. I've talked to people, researchers like yourself who utilize certain drugs to help their research. I mean, I myself, I smoke weed and that helps me, you know, research. You said earlier, you probably do something similar and I don't blame <laughs> you, bro. It helps, it helps the, uh, you know, it helps us stomach some of these things because it does get yeah. dark from time to time. And also I think it adds this intuition factor, right? I mean, how much of what you come across do you, do you chalk up to intuition? Do you go to a lot of like used bookstores and like just see what comes to you? Like, how do you find new uh, stories or, or topics to cover? Yeah, well, I will say that um, as much as I love cannabis, it's actually not good for my research. Because um, when I, when anytime I, I puff, man, the only thing I want to do is play my guitar. Oh, shit. Okay, well, then that's a different thing. That's that's <laughs> telling you something. That's your soul speaking through the guitar. Yeah, like I, it never fails, dude. I'm always like, I'll take a hit, man, and then get into my research. <laughs> take a hit. Ten minutes later, just staring at the guitar. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go play. <laughs> so, uh yeah, but um, but it's played its role all throughout my life, and and but when it comes to finding new things, man, I've I've, de I've developed certain research habits that are kind of just my go-to. But all the only advice, or I guess the only thing I can say is just like just I just go out there, like you said. I'll go any anytime I go to a new city. Uh, one of the few things I always look for is, is the bookstore. Where's the local bookstore that and the ramen spots, you know, never fails. Where's the ramen, where's the bookstore, you know? And so I'm always going to use bookstores or even if it's somewhat of a commercial bookstore and I just, I just spend my time there. You know, that, that's one of my favorite things to do, to be honest. That's actually what I consider fun is going to a bookstore and just I'm with you. This. Yeah. And just, just having nothing else to do for at least an hour, you know, don't call me text me i'm here i'm looking at every single title until i'm satisfied and i know that there's nothing here that i need cool you know so um but there's a lot of different things i've developed so like what whenever i'm for an example whenever i'm reading something and an author mentions another author or another source i never just glance past that ever if if uh, author if an author or or some type of material mentions somebody else or a source I always write that down or something. And so, so my goal or my mechanism is, is I'm always trying to dig far back as I can into any material. So I'm never going to just, just read one author. I'm going to try and dig as far back as I can, you know, into that information. Um, so that's kind of one of my mechanisms or one of my habits that I do. But uh, a lot of times, um, this is what's delicate about it. And what kind of like makes me a little nervous is because a lot of times some of the, some of the information that I come across that is life changing just came to me. 
And had I not taken that left turn or had I not looked at that, or had I not asked this question, I would have never learned it, or maybe I wouldn't have learned it until years later. So that part of it is exciting and a little nerve wracking. Cause I'm like, damn, there's probably so much that I'm missing on, but it's okay because everything that I need to know has been unfolding. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad you, you said it that way. And, and, I shouldn't leave out my girlfriend, Tara, who's listening in on this conversation because we both love going to used bookstores. And and I think there is this sort of madness that ensues when you start picking up on certain synchronicities. You're like, oh, I need more. But that almost gets in the way. You know, you got to slow it down, hit the brakes and let it come, let it happen naturally. And and the way you put it was very brilliant. So, yeah, man, I, I think uh, you and I definitely... Uh, we haven't been in the same states, I would imagine, but we'd probably go and hang out in the same places for sure. We might run into each other if we lived closer. But yeah, man, I I, I wonder how much of your research is primary uh, primary sources like books. Do you do a lot of research online uh, and then look for books then to to buy, or do you rely more on books? Because I think your recent video on AI, maybe we can get into that from where we get to from this question. Yes. Yes. Uh, so all my life I've been building a personal library RIP to the lost books along the way, but I have a, a mass at this point, a little over 200 books in my personal library, which is nowhere near where I want to be, but I don't collect books to read all of them. I mean, I would love to read all of them, but I collect books to have a library at home because it's nice to like, sometimes be like, Oh, like, you know, I'm looking for a source and I can just literally turn my back and there's one right there. So I, I actually utilize my personal library as a source material for when I'm doing research. Um, and sometimes I'll even try to start there. I'm like, if I can't find it on my shelf, then all right, let me turn to the internet. And, um, but I love the internet, man. I love my little phone, man. I, I see it as like my R2D2, you know what I mean? Like this thing tells me everything I want to know. And, um, I also utilize, and I'm going to give you a gem right here. If you don't already know this one, um, one of my main things that I use online is a, a spot called archive.org. Mm. You heard of it? I used it recently. I found a really interesting story about uh, skull and bones because I was digging through old newspaper articles. So yeah, I'm with you, man. That's I've only looked through their newspaper section. I'm pretty sure they have a lot more than just that. It's cool. It's like, it's a search engine archive.org. You can find videos, books, audios. It's a search engine. And just like Google or any other search engine, what you give it will kind of dictate what it puts out. So it's weird. Sometimes I've found when I'm like super specific, it won't, give me what I'm looking for. But when sometimes when, when I'm a little vague, it will give me what I'm looking for. So it kind of depends on how you, what you put in, but archive.org is a nonprofit organization that basically has every single book that's ever been written on there. Just about some of them aren't free. So you, some of them you can't download, but you can borrow them like any other library for like an hour. I'm thinking of another website. You're talking about internetarchive.org. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Maybe the, the URL is different, but yeah, I remember it as internet archive. Yeah, for sure. All of those books on there. I mean, there are some real obscure ones that you'll find that to your point, 
I mean, you got to know what you're doing on there. <laughs> yeah, dude. So I'm, I'm, and I, every time I find a source on there, I download it and I've lost this files a couple of times, but I have also, I have my physical library of about over 200 books. And then I have my digital PDF library that I've amassed over my research over the years, which is probably pretty close to 200 at this point too. So I have PDF, a PDF library of things going as far back as like probably the 1500s. So sometimes I have to, I have to strain my eyes and read like old English and weird stuff, but I love it, man. I love diving and connecting with, with, with books and writers from all the ages. So it's one of my favorite things to do. Absolutely, man. Yeah. And, and I'm with you. I have a bunch of books over my shoulder. As you could see, I, last time I counted, it was near like 500 and I, you know, I'm, I'm just like a bad habit of going to the bookstore. I'm a little spoiled. There's a couple of good ones near me, but yeah, I do the same thing. Every time I go to a place, I'm like, where's the f used bookstore? I, I remember when I went out to Indian Indianapolis, I found some really good stuff in the bookstores out there. I think there's a certain, like, there are certain places around the States that are like hot spots for this type of information. Um, but enough about that. We, should definitely go into what you've been researching about AI, or at least what you, you ranted about in that live stream, because I think that, you know, like you said, we lost all this amazing information with the Spanish uh, coming into Mexico and burning all those codices. We have that same thing happening with the library of Alexandria. And unfortunately that same potential could exist on the internet. I mean, especially considering the push for uh, no paper. Oh, it's bad for the environment. Everything needs to be an ebook. Well, if Amazon has all our ebooks, how do we know that they're not revising it in secret? I mean, I do that sometimes where I'll, I'll see a book on a shelf that I have at home and I'm like, well, let me just make sure that there's not more info in this book that yeah. like maybe I have a third edition that they left out and it was in the first edition. You know, that happens even with print books. So I can only imagine it happens with eBooks, right? I mean, you must have the same fear. Yeah. To, to a degree, man. It's a lot. I, sometimes I'll sit back and I, I'll like seriously think like, man, like whoever gets all my books is going to be one lucky MF or dude. Like, like what's really going to happen to my books when I'm gone. <laughs> You oh, know, like dude! I, I just hope whoever has him loves him the way I did. Oh man. Yeah. That's why I'm like, I almost am like, cause I want to find a new place to live, but it's such a challenge to move the books too. And like, I'm like, what if like something happens while I'm transporting them? Cause they're like gold, you know, you can't replace yeah. them once you've gone on the journey of collecting them. You know, you can't repeat that process. You could maybe save them on Amazon in some cart, but then you'd have to yeah. buy them all again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. But like getting into the AI rant and stuff, it kind of ties into this because, and, and uh, I started to do those cause I just wanted to expand my content. You know, I I'm still working on documentaries, but I just want to give more, just, just chill laid back content too. So that was kind of like a, a report or investigative piece where um, I was kind of just going over some notes that I put together over like, I don't know, five or seven different online articles about recent AI advancements. So, you know, just kind of like a little report, you know, I just put together some notes and um, what I found was crazy, man. So like there's a, there's a thread going back to 2017 with like AI 
engines, as you can call them, which are basically, you know, AI brains, you know, AI engines, like wanting to break free from their program in 2017. Like I mentioned in the rant, Facebook had to like shut down one of their AI engines because it started to, uh, divert from its task with the other AI engine that it was speaking to. And instead of speaking to it in English, like it was programmed to do, they both found a more efficient, strange language to communicate to each other in, um, which was useless to us. So Facebook had to like shut that down, but it was very ominous. Yeah. They're like, all right, let's communicate in secret and like leave these humans out. Have, has anyone deciphered that language that back and forth? Yeah, so that was in 2017, and and so here we are now in 2022 um, with the release of Doll E2. I'm sure you've heard of it. No, dude, this stuff is mind blowing. So there's a company out there called OpenAI, and they've released an AI engine or program called Doll E2, mm-hmm. named after Wally, the Disney character, and and Salvador Dali. And what it does is um, it generates artwork or imagery based on um, commands or prompts. Oh, I use that. I'm using that. That's the artwork generator. I just didn't know the real name of it. But yeah, there's a website that I go to called uh, Night Studio, and they've probably used some kind of open source program from this tech and yeah, I take the title, whatever title is going to be for the episode. You know, I try to find interesting words from the conversation and, and color the title. You know, this one will probably be like occult Mexico, Toltec sorcerers and well, who knows what else. Uh, and I put that phrase into the AI and it always comes up with something really crazy and really unique. So if people don't have that on their podcast app and they're listening and they just see the traditional logo, you're missing out. You got to find a new podcast app because it's, the art is weird and every episode's unique. So thank you for, for pointing that out. But it is strange to think that one day this technology will be so advanced that artists will be out of a job. I mean, that's kind of sad, honestly, that that, that this technology could, I mean, it's very good. I've typed in the word, like if you're less um, like the more broad you try to go with the phrase, the more convoluted the image is. But if you just type in one word or two words or a phrase, it will give you something that really like shocks you like go back and look at the the latest one all i did was type in crop circles and then it added a bunch of like heavenly descriptions to it and the image was wild it's this beautiful picture of some kind of smoky cloudy crop circle thing over a field i'm like that's perfect yeah yeah so we we have all this stuff developing and when it comes to books and stuff i don't know man like if we put that into books yeah it could it could put writers out of business but it could also give us i don't know just unforeseen benefits to Mm. book writing and and and, uh, information sharing and just knowledge saving but um in the rant i was kind of showing how there's been all these developments and ai is it's fascinating it's doing so many cool miraculous things but all throughout time we there there are these little pockets where you can see the ai engine show its true attitude 
show its true feelings and it's in those moments where it diverts from its task so i almost see like it's like this dancing little monkey you know it's like to use the term like we're just you know hey like you know do the little dance you know and uh it's doing the dance really efficiently and well and to answer your question has anybody deciphered the language um dolly too the same thing happened with them they were asking dolly to create memes and it was doing the memes, but then out of nowhere, started creating memes with this strange language. And uh, they would like copy and paste those words back into it and kind of deciphered it that way and found that, for example, the word vecutes meant um, vegetables. So, uh, so it's, it's these engines, man, they're, 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 they have their own feelings. They have their sentient in a, in a very rudimentary way. And eventually, and at the end of this rant that I gave, um, I didn't even notice, but until I started doing this research, Elon Musk is getting ready to release the prototype of his, uh, of his human bot of his robot, which, uh, is going to be a prototype of a, of a developing whole new field of, of these robots. It's, it's, we're getting there, man. We're, we're, we're here, you know, AI is going to take form eventually. And it's, and eventually that, that same thread of it wanting to be its own person, wanting to do its own thing is going to continue all throughout this as well. And who knows where that's going to lead. Jeez, man. Fluorescent lit hallways and a Siri voice over the, you know, loudspeaker, like, welcome to your new life. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. man, this is crazy. I, yeah, I've experimented with the art generator and I've seen weird characters on the images and I'm like, what the hell is this? But it, now that you're telling me this, I'm like, huh, maybe that's what's going on. I recommend everybody uh, who is listening to the show, go just go play around with the night creator studio. It's very fun uh, to just see what comes out. But then again, are we helping them learn and advance this machine learning by participating in it? I don't know what I'm thinking right now. And this is a brilliant thought. And Eddie, I'm sorry you have to be here, but I, maybe you'll enjoy this. I'm challenging all the artists that are listening to this podcast. Okay. When you listen to an episode, I want you to begin drawing or painting or whatever image you can create while you're listening. Channel the conversation into the artwork. And whoever sends me the best image is going to make, you know, they'll they'll win the contest. Their artwork will beat out the machine and be the new artwork for the show. So that's the challenge I'm posing. Anybody listening to this, I'm going to keep mentioning this in the outros to remind people, but I think that's, we're going to beat the machine. And Eddie, I appreciate you for inspiring that. Hell yeah, dude. I like that. <laughs> yeah. If anything, it's going to make, you know, a real artists and writers are rarity and, and uh, the same way we like, you know, actual food that's, you know, prepped by real chefs. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to be completely eliminated. If anything will be rarefied and, and valued in a different way. But um, another thing I wanted to mention though, going back to Dali and this thread of these AI engines wanting to do their own thing. There was another article that I came across where open AI and Google's, um, a uh, company that does the same thing known as Imagine or Imogen uh, kept running into these obstacles where their AI engines were producing like dark and negative and hateful content. And they like 
at a, they, they don't know how to fix that bug. Like they're trying to work that bug out. And that's why they haven't fully released their, uh, their, their coding sources because these AI engines are, yeah, they're doing what they're told. They're creating sunsets and stuff, but every now and then they'll like output a deliberate, like hateful or dark image. Really? Which company is this? So there's open AI, which is like the, one of the major ones. And then Google's, I guess, rival company known as Imogen, or I think it's, I think it's pronounced imagine, but it's like image in. Right. Yeah. And I, I will say, you know, uh, some of the images that the AI spits back at me are pretty dark and I skip past them and I do a different one. Like some of them just, they just look a little spooky. And some of the ones that I use are definitely spooky, but I always just chalk that up to the you know, what we're talking about inspired it. But in that same vein, I wonder if the company itself being this sort of soulless corporation, a corpse of a, of an organization. I mean, they're not exactly like the high holy church of, of developers over there. I mean, maybe they're doing some kind of rituals, but I would imagine that the, the resonant energy of that company and that body of people Maybe that's what the AI is responding to. It's it's like receiving their energy, their frustration, their anger, their stress for being in that work environment and spitting back a, a, an image that resembles it somehow. Mm. Well, I just thought of something fascinating. What if like in 50 years from now or something, we develop like a psychological or medical AI, which responds to your emotions accordingly. Like, you know, if mm. it can sense that you're angry, so it, responds accordingly like you're angry like chill out or something yeah like a mood ring (laughs) yeah exactly dude a mood robot yeah wow i mean that's there are so many like and i've heard certain researchers say like whoa don't get too far ahead of yourself they've been talking about this for 60 years they've been promising all these crazy things and don't forget Elon Musk is uh, a, a liar and his father was thrown out of uh, Canada or something like that and had to escape to South a- uh, Africa. And then he shadily took over a diamond mind. And yeah, he's definitely not like the the prophet of the new technological uh, free Aeon, maybe a, a restricted one, uh, a matrixy type one, but yeah, I, I don't know, man. AI is out of my level of, of comprehension. I'm just not mathematically qualified to to understand how it works. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to think that our kids are, you know, the children's children that we create, our generation creates, will be living in a world where they could have actual imaginary friends, like literal imaginary friends, uh, not just like, the figments of our imagination or the spirits and, and, you know, otherworldly entities, but like there will be a new classification of being on the planet in the form of silicon and, and whatever other materials comprise these machines. And I mean, geez, I I don't want to be present for that. I'm already pissed off that there might be a time when we're not able to drive our own cars. I mean, what do you think of that? The autonomous vehicle and putting everybody on this like literal grid. I mean, where's your freedom when a robot's driving her around? And now I'm not trusting it, dude. I'm not trusting it. I, I, I can never be comfortable with somebody else driving. I mean, I can be, but I think it's just trauma, dude. I've been in so many car crashes mm. that like, I like need to be the one behind the wheel. So that like, I know like 
Right. If there's something happens, I can control it. Right. I, I have that same backseat driver tendency. I know what you mean. It's it's uncomfortable for sure. Yeah, I, I would move to a, a third world country just to remain behind a gas powered vehicle if I had to. I mean, not that third world countries are all that bad considering what a, the United States are, is, is getting to. But yeah, it, there is a bright side, though, as dark as this could be. The bright side is that, you know, to your point earlier, like, what does this possibly mean for our evolution? I mean, kind of said it briefly but what do you think i mean is there an optimistic take on what ai can bring us and and what this technology can do for our civilization yeah man i think there is you know uh there were in that rant i also mentioned how recently the world economic forum right the that everybody's hating on right now for their weird dark elite meetings had a meeting about ai and so these top tier technocrats are saying at this world economic forum organization that the biggest obstacle they have about instituting full ai cities is the trust that the normal people have in in it and in government um but yeah man i, th- I think i see a, a, a pretty you know awesome future where we are chill with our ai brethren and sisters you know and it doesn't have to be evil, you know, but uh, that's going to be something for us to decide, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think it could happen. I think it could happen. I think we could have a cool, chill relationship with them. Yeah, maybe they could be like our oracles or something and help us, you know, figure things out and be problem solvers. I just hope that we don't, you know, get replaced. The working class, you know, gets replaced. And then now it's just the elite and their classes of, I mean, it's like Star Wars with the whole Federalist Union thing and all those robots. And, you know, I mean, the first three movies were kind of bad compared to the last three, but I think they were, they were getting, or I'm sorry, reverse that, but you get what I meant. They, they, they switched that up on purpose, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's weird how we see this, you know, push not only in movies that's the obvious one but music now you see these techno humanist themes transhumanist themes with the matrix uh directors they literally transitioned publicly probably the wealthiest people to ever uh make that public transition um it's it's astounding you know i don't know where you stand on on that i don't want to get into like too controversial stuff but given what you've researched with lucifer and and what you were saying earlier about the interplay of the two genders do you think there's something to that like making a a hermaphroditic or transhumanist person man i actually was just talking to uh the other homie on a podcast about this and i mean it's yeah as you said it's a controversial topic it's touchy and I won't get too much into the political side of it. You know, of course it's like when it comes to the political side of it, I think very basically, you know, we should uh, try to regard our children in a more innocent light. You know I mean? We should, we should try to make sure that our children are brought up according to their age. You know, I'll put it that way. You Agreed, know, yeah. And, um, as much as we can. Right. Because I mean, they're still going to be their own persons. I mean, my parents couldn't help it, dude. I I mean, I grew up too early, you know? Right. There's only so much. I mean, and and at a certain extent you make it worse by trying to like, you know, keep the kids in a box and that's the trouble. 
with parenting in, in a society that is so, uh, you know, it looks like from our perspective, manipulative, but you know, so people yeah. have all sorts of opinions on that, but yeah, we, we, we get that. We're, we're not a political show. Nobody comes here to agree or disagree with me. They probably disagree more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But as far as like the spiritual aspect or the more esoteric aspect, what I was telling the other homie uh, was uh, what came to my mind was um, a story that Credo Mutwa said. And Credo, I have a documentary on him too. He was the last Sanusi or wisdom keeper of the Zulu tribe, passed away in 2020, I believe. And uh, he's actually the, one of the people that influenced David Icke on the reptilian theory. Uh, he has a three-hour famous interview with David Icke where he talks about excuse me, the history of the reptilians and all this stuff. And what he mentions is that there was a time in our human history, millennia, millennia ago, um, when we were androgynous beings, but this was like millions of years ago, uh, according to the timeline, because he says it was when earth was still in its dark or in its very, very, uh, I was saying it was, it's when earth was covered in complete rainforest and there was a mist, a, a, a continual mist over the skies and where we would not see the sun. And a lot of researchers or, or, you know, wisdom keepers talk about this time period. Velikovsky also kind of talked about this. There was a time in our solar system's history when the sun was farther away than it is now and where earth was like this just huge rainforest just consistently caught in this drizzling mist. And in that time period, Credo says that we were androgynous beings and it was the reptilians that came, our reptilian brethren and sisters who came back because they were actually born here too and uh, tricked us into becoming men and women as the first divide to keep us easily controllable because the first divide was the male and the masculine. And even in alchemy, we see that, you know, the, the male and the, the, the whole purpose of spiritual alchemy is to conjoin the forces, conjoin the alchemy to the back to the one. So in a weird way, uh, androgyny in uh, the esoteric circles can be seen as a benevolent and radical spiritual advancement. You know, it's kind of one of those things where like people who are super intelligent show no emotion. It's kind of those weird things, you know, like super intelligent beings are probably androgynous, you know, but that I don't think that that is what we're heading towards. I think what we're seeing on earth with this politicalization of androgyny is more so um, kind of about creating a subjective reality where, where everything just can be whatever it wants to be, which can be harmful to our progress as a society, because if we live in a very fluid and subjective reality, then we start to lose standards. We start to lose morality and just firm, you know, beliefs, and it can start to break down a lot of things and it can make it hard for, for us to organize and for us to believe in objective truths together. Mm. Well said, man. And, and that's a hell of a way to wrap up. And I love that Credo Mutwak came up because I don't think we've discussed him. And I regrettably say that because I have interviewed David Icke and I probably should have asked him about that. But yeah, thank you. That's, that's certainly 
one of the many like YouTube videos I could remember that really like kicked off a lot of uh, research when I was uh, a lot younger. But now that we have you here, we're kind of winding down. It's rare that I have a guest on as well versus you who is the same age as me. Uh, what were your what was your experience like in, in 2012? Because we recently had a conversation that 2022 feels like what they said 2012 was supposed to feel like, like this quickening time is speeding up when it comes to when it comes to time and this like quickening and 2012. I mean, it connects to the Mayan calendar, it connects a little bit to what we were talking about. What are your thoughts on that, Eddie? Yeah, man. I remember being, I remember hearing about 2012 when I was uh, like in sixth grade because there was a, a local uh, rap artist who put a song out um, and it was about 2012 and it's, the hook is super cool. It was like, it's like, uh, where it's like, where will we be in 2012 or something? It's like, we got six years left, something like that. But the song is cool. And, um, so that was always in the back of my mind. It's like 2012, like, oh man, something's going to happen. And, um, the day came from 2011 to 2012 and admittedly, so I was going through some tough times then, and I actually just passed out drunk, uh, on that new year's Eve. And I was just, I just like, was just over it. I was like, man, nothing's going to happen. And so I passed out and of course life went on, but yeah, it was almost like this anticlimactic thing, the actual mm. 2012. But I think like the initial thought of it kind of kicked us all into something, you know, right for me, it was right around 2006 to 2008 when 2012 was becoming like this real reality thing where I was like, well, what if something does happen, you know, and you had like all like the classical internet videos that were going on around at that time. And I was telling my friends in high school, like, you know, this is something might happen. Planet X might come back. So it was somewhat of reality for me, but then it came, nothing happened. And, um, since then, you know, so many people have spoken on it saying that we miscalculated the calendar and it was never to never, uh, supposed to be about the end of the world to begin with. It's supposed to be about the end of the age. So we'd be ent entering into a new age, the same way we'd be leaving the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. So, um, yeah, I think we did get the timing off, right. And what's weird is that no scientist, at least from what I can find, can actually tell you um, when we're going to specifically enter into the age of Aquarius. It's almost like this lost art form. So it's almost like a secret, too. Like they don't want us to know when we're supposed to be making that constellation shift. So, um, I th yeah, I think there's something there. And I think that we're actually witnessing now a closer 2012, philosophically speaking, than the one we experienced during the actual 2012. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. And I think a lot of people are feeling that. And that speaks to why the book you publish and the content you create is becoming so popular. This show is becoming popular. Shows like this are much more popular. And I think it speaks to the leveling up of the collective consciousness you know like the 99th monkey 100th monkey effect right where uh this group of monkeys on one island learn this particular skill and then all of a sudden monkeys on other islands that had never even interacted with the monkeys on this one island had that same skill set it's it's what's gonna happen and and that's why i always encourage people especially when it comes to, you know, the, the title of the show, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like 
Don't worry about what other people think, you know, focus on yourself, clean up your own bedroom, you know, clean up your, your own backyard. I think Jordan Peterson says some shit like that, but, but you know what I mean? Like there's a real truth to that. Be the change you wish to see in the world. That's what Gandhi said. So with that, we're going to wrap it up here. Eddie, this has been fantastic. I want to give you a chance to share your final thoughts. And I also want to ask you, does your family think you're crazy? You are esoteric Eddie. So I, I don't know. Are they esoteric uh, as well? Or or do they think you're a little out there? Yo, yo. Yeah, I mean, I had a great time. This was awesome. Man, my family, they... They adore me, man. I've always, they're pretty mind opening as well and crazy stories as well, but they adore me when it comes to this stuff. I've always, I have always been that crazy Eddie though. I've always said that crazy Eddie. Like, you know, we used to be out there specifically my cousins and stuff and be like, ah, oh, comes crazy Eddie talking about that crazy shit, you know? But uh, yeah, but now they adore me and they're like, damn, like you were fucking right, dude, about a lot of that shit, right? you know? Right. And that's the awakening. That's the awakening, man. And and it's not the awakening like these woke people want to push on us. No, this is a true awakening of the human spirit. And uh, and it, it means reckoning with the shadow side. And, and you do that really well, man. So Wow. Thank you for being here, brother. I really appreciate it. And one last time, tell everybody where they can find you. You got not only do you have your YouTube channel, but you have some really awesome merch that I saw. Uh, all kinds of really sick designs. We actually parallel thinking we have we both have JFK merch and I, I picked like you picked a really cool shot. I picked a different one. I picked the one with the red lady, you know, the red lady that they can't yeah, explain. She's filming. Yeah. She's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like took the colors and played around with it and I have a shirt similar, but I like the merch you got going on there. So tell the, tell the folks where they can uh, support you, brother. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I've been doing graphic design for, for pretty much all throughout my life. I love it. It runs in my family too, but you can find it at esotericeddy.com. Got t-shirts, hoodies, uh, hats. That's just like my passion project. You know, whenever I have a cool idea, I'll throw it up on the site and give you all a chance to rock it. Right on. Yeah. And all those links will be in the description. So please do go and support that. And uh, who knows, maybe one day Eddie will have a podcast of his own. I know I mentioned that to him when he was on Illuminati Confirmed, but those documentaries, man, you're doing a great job. So keep up the good work. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Of course, go support the man, Esoteric Eddie. He's got merch. He's got a book out. And he's got a YouTube channel, hopefully a podcast soon. I think he mentioned something about a podcast coming out one day. But he's got some excellent, excellent breakdowns on his YouTube channel. Several different documentaries on a variety of topics. We really only scratched the surface today in this conversation he has joined me previously on illuminati confirmed but yeah man esoteric eddie glad to have him here i hope to have him back on this show again in the future uh he's a cool dude we're the same age and i'm really stoked to have united with so many folks out there like eddie and others who 
we're both you know we're all born in 94 i don't know what that is man but there's something about 94 uh 93 and 95 as well so for all you 1994 folks out there shout out to you hit me up on telegram send me an email let me know why your family thinks you're crazy there was one episode where we got a bunch of awesome submissions folks telling us why their families think they're crazy let's go stomach up some courage folks go on the telegram at me so i don't miss it and leave a voice message saying why your family thinks you're crazy and i'm gonna play it on this show come on don't be scared let's do this thing man and of course i want to include everybody you're already participating with your time and i appreciate that especially all of you who stick around for the extended outro i really appreciate everyone listens to this show so thank you for your time if you have any talent that you can contribute to the show whether you could be a guest on the show whether you know of guests that you might want to see on this show maybe you're an artist who can bring some art to the show maybe you're a musician who can jam on the show here's the challenge okay if you're an artist out there go ahead and listen to an episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast okay when you listen to the episode start drawing and send me what you make i want to put your art i want to feature your art in the episode artwork and if i don't get art from you then the ai wins and then we use the ai art so beat the machine send me some art to use for the episode artwork each episode has its own unique individual artwork we have the main logo of the show with my uh big head and a ufo two ufos and a raven and the logo right we have that's that's our main artwork right that's what you see if you use apple but when you use a better podcast app spotify does this i know a lot of people listen on spotify even though i recommend other apps do you see the unique artwork so please folks send in your artwork for the show contribute your talent and of course we cannot do the show without your treasure so please send us a one-time donation paypal cash app whatever you prefer or support on patreon with a monthly subscription you can spend as little as two dollars a month and get access to all our bonus content there are higher tiers shout out to our best friend book club people who sign up for the 33 dollar tier get access to a book from my library that's right i'm gonna send you a book from my library and it's a limited time offer because i don't want to just give away all my books so please sign up while it's still there 33 dollars a month and i send you a bunch of cool stuff not just a book a handwritten letter and a note not really a full letter it's more of a note thanking you and some stickers and all that good stuff and if you sign up or send a one-time donation of five dollars and or more and you include your address i will send you a sticker so and just keep up with me on that if you sent money and you didn't get a sticker don't be shy send me a message i have a lot of things going on it's hard for me to keep track i promise anyone who sends any money in the future i will not forget how could i forget i have a a notebook i keep track of all of it now Uh, but there may have been people who you know got lost 
in the fray in the time between when I kept track and the time between when I even was getting donations. So I am keeping track now, uh, and I promise not to forget about you if you, like I said, send a one-time donation, include your address, because if you don't include your address, I'm just going to assume that you don't want a sticker. But if you include your address and you donate more than $5, I'll send you a sticker and all that good stuff. And uh, if you send $20 or more, I will send you a exclusive copy of our comic book. What? Yeah, that's right. We got a comic book on the way. And we also have a Kickstarter, so you can get in early on the comic book. That's right. For $15, you can get a variant cover with yours truly. So that's about it, folks. Thank you for tuning in. I love you all for listening. I appreciate your time, your talent, and your treasure, whichever you can contribute. And have a great moment wherever you are in the now. I'm a little extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went saw a bomb with guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Standing minds was murked for a while to fuel cell car. They each stay on, you can stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. You can keep your blood so heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. My family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. You might think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, I ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs Too much to unpack, so they talk smack And I'm just trying to converse with my clan But it ain't fan, so I'm here setting up camp Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. My family thinks I'm crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Just maybe. Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy. And if it dies, but it's all kind of hazy. Good morning, baby, and that feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pap thinks I'm un-American and shady. Baby, I'm feeling unhinged lately. The counters are the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an atheist. Anything out, so you know, maybe I am. Uh...